0: From Creation Ministries International, you're listening to creation.com's article podcast. The research and insights that give God the glory refutes evolution and gives you the answers to defend your faith. I'm Joseph Darnell. Vestigial organs have been used as an argument against a designer for many years and have been used as a major proof of evolution. The vestigial organs argument is merely a modified form of the bad design argument. While it may sound scientific, it is in fact a theological argument. The argument essentially runs like this, God would not have originally created a degenerate form of biological structure X in creature A, as evidenced by more functional examples of structure X in other creatures. Therefore, evolution did it. The vestigial structure's argument has suffered repeated blows over the last few decades, with functions being found for most, if not all, of the other 180 organs listed as either vestigial or rudimentary by anatomist Robert Wiedersheim in 1893. In a recent article in New Scientist, Laura Spenny discusses the vestigial organ's notion and claims that it is still a viable concept despite having taken such a battering at the hands of modern medical science. She notes that, these days, many biologists are extremely wary of talking about vestigial organs at all. Spinney reflects that this may be because the subject has become a battlefield for creationists in the Intelligent Design Lobby. As was indeed a battlefield, a battlefield long won by biblical creationists, which is why we're seeing the current attempted fight back by the likes of Spinney and New Scientist. Spenny sees much of the problem as semantic. The word vestigial has been poorly defined by most people. Most have come to think of vestigial organs as useless, but that's not the proper definition according to Spenny. Quoting Gerd Müller, a theoretical biologist from the University of Vienna, Austria, she defines them like this. Vestigial structures are largely or entirely functionless as far as their original roles are concerned though they may retain lesser functions or develop minor new ones. However, evolutionists themselves define it in a more classical fashion than this revisionist definition. This revisionist definition can effectively take in many new structures, but it effectively renders any arguments against design from vestigial structures invalid because it allows for a function. Spenny then applies this definition to five different structures in the human body and presents them as solid examples of vestigial structures. The vomeronasal organ, or Jacobson's organ, is an organ present in the noses of many mammals that detects pheromones, which provide information about the gender and reproductive state of others, and can thus influence behavior. There has been much debate over the influence of pheromones on human behavior, and much of this has revolved around whether or not the vomeronasal is functional in adult humans. Spenny takes this as evidence that the vomeronasal is a useless remnant of our evolutionary heritage. However, Spenny fails to mention studies that have pointed to a function for the vomeronasal. Therefore, one gets the impression that no functions have ever been proposed. The biblical model also allows for degeneration, and considering that it is unlikely that the vomeronasal organ is essential to survival, it could have been subject to deleterious mutations that have rendered the organ ineffective in at least some of the population. Goosebumps in other animals is a reflex response that causes hair to stand upright, making the animal look bigger, which could help to scare off predators or provide for extra warmth. However, the relative hairlessness of humans makes this reflex seem pointless, if that were its function in humans. However, goosebumps are linked to emotional responses in humans, and may serve to heighten emotional reactions, according to Spinney. Spinney muses on the vestigiality of goosebumps, but postulates a new function unrelated to their supposed original function. This can only stand as vestigial, assuming the revised definition of the term that she uses and Spenny presumes that evolution is the only possible explanation for their existence. However, a unique function for goosebumps in humans is hardly a problem for design, and is at the very least an equally valid explanation of their origin. Darwin's point is a cartilaginous bump in the rim of the outer ear found in about 10% of humans. This is an autosomally dominant trait with incomplete penetration and is thought to be the vestige of a joint that allowed the top part of the ancestral ear to swivel or flop down over the opening to the ear. Spenny follows plastic surgeon Anthony Sclofani of the New York Eye and Ear Infirmary in New York City, arguing that the genetics of the Darwin's point condition suggest that it is an evolutionary vestige. The trait is passed on according to an autosomal dominant pattern, meaning that a child need only inherit one copy of the gene responsible to have Darwin's point. That suggests that at one time it was useful. However, it also has variable penetration, meaning that you won't necessarily have the trait even if you inherit the gene. The variable penetration reflects the fact that it is no longer advantageous, Sclafani says. However, this is merely twisting genetics into an evolutionary tale. Autosomal dominant traits can arise through mutations and either have no functional importance, such as a widow's peak, or are harmful, such as Huntington's disease. So it does not have to be functional to have any sort of dominance. Rather, the combination of autosomal dominance and incomplete penetration suggests that it's a mutation But it does not affect the survival of the organism, and since it is a dominant trait, it is able to find its way into the population more readily than a mutation that gives rise to a recessive allele. Therefore, Darwin's point merely provides at best an example of natural variation, and at worst, an example of genetic degeneration, neither of which is a problem for the biblical worldview. The tailbone, or cossacks, was indeed long considered vestigial and used as evidence against design but for some time now it has been well known that the cossack serves as an important anchor point to the muscles that hold the anus in place. Anyone who has injured their cossacks would hardly agree that, that it is not important, with painful walking and especially sitting. So on what basis does Spinney reinvoke the cossacks as a vestigial organ? Basically, it is only a vestigial organ under the revisionist definition that Spinney gives. That is, not a reduced function, but a modified function obviously from an evolutionary perspective. Once again, this provides no problem for design. The wisdom teeth, which usually erupt around ages 17 through 25, often need to be removed because they do not have sufficient room to emerge, so get caught on existing teeth. This is called impaction. The major reason for problems with wisdom teeth today is most likely diet rather than any genetic changes. The human diet, particularly in the industrialized world, has become softer and more processed, which results in the jaw being subject to much less force during development, causing changes in jaw shape. Therefore, there is less room in the gum for wisdom teeth to break through without causing problems. Spinney also says, Perhaps as many as 35% of people have no wisdom teeth at all, suggesting we may be on an evolutionary trajectory to losing them altogether. Even if this were true, it provides no support for evolution because evolution requires new structures to arise naturalistically. Rather, loss of teeth is just another example of degeneration, which fits perfectly within the biblical worldview of creation and fall. Next, we're gonna learn why, even if vestigial organs were real, they're no help to evolution, right after a short break. Did you know that at Creation.com we have several books and videos that can further your understanding of the book of Genesis and the issues that Christians are confronted with? A great example of our resources you can purchase is the Classic Refuting Pack. It's three books that do an excellent job responding to Christian evolutionary compromises. The first book in the pack is Refuting Evolution, a hard-hitting critique of the most up-to-date arguments for evolution to challenge educators, students, and parents. It is a powerful yet concise summary of the arguments against evolution and for creation. It helps students and teachers think more critically about origins. This top-selling book has over 450,000 copies in print. The second book in the pack, Refuting Evolution 2, is a sequel to Refuting Evolution that comprehensively refutes arguments to support evolution, as presented in TV documentaries and Scientific American. Read world-leading evolutionists in their own words and then find straightforward answers from science and the Bible. Refuting Evolution 2 will prepare you to answer the best arguments thrown at you by peers, teachers, neighbors, and skeptics. And the third book in the classic pack is Refuting Compromise, a comprehensive and resounding refutation of the position of progressive creationist Hugh Ross, whose views cause massive confusion about science and the Bible. Refuting Compromise is one of the most powerful and scientific defenses of the straightforward view of Genesis creation ever written. So get this pack of three excellent books at creation.com/.store The notion of vestigial organs as an argument for evolution fails on a number of accounts. Firstly, vestigial organs provides no positive evidence for evolution they are presented as negative evidence against a designer. And even if the vestigial organ argument were true, it at best presents examples of degeneration or information loss. This is the opposite of what evolution requires to explain the origin of the complexity and diversity of life. For vestigiality to occur in evolutionary terms, the organ needs to have been formed by naturalistic processes to be fully functional at some time in the past. However, this is precisely the problem. There is no evidence for such creative processes. Secondly, the argument from vestigiality is usually laden with theological inaccuracies. The designer that is implicitly assumed in most invectives against design is nothing like the biblical god, but rather is a completely unhistorical and impersonal deity, more akin to a deistic watchmaker than a fully personal god who is intimately involved in his creation as revealed in the Bible. It is often assumed by the anti-God brigade, though unvoiced, that the designer created everything as we see it today. Within the biblical model, degeneration is expected because of the fall. The fall subjected the creation to bondage and decay, of which mutational degeneration is one example. Paul says in Romans 8:18 through 25 It is also assumed that unless the designer created something completely new every time, that the designer has failed or has acted in a way that is inconsistent with a designer being involved at all. However, the biblical God would have been expected to create in an orderly manner because regularity in design brought honor to the creator and would also indicate the creator's authority over and mastery of his creation. Thirdly, The vestigial organs argument is made by comparing modern creatures to one another to infer the historical origin of the supposed vestigial structure. However, this is invalid by ascertaining the origin of such structures. Not only does common ancestry have to be assumed for this to work, but so does evolutionary stasis in the control creature used for comparison. Vestigial structures fail as an argument for evolution and against the biblical designer. Spinney's revised definition of vestigial blurs the lines so much that almost anything could in principle be called vestigial. There are a few important points for evolutionists to consider before they argue against the biblical account of creation and design. The biblical God is a subtle creator. He is able to create structures and reflexes that have no selective advantage because he is not bound by evolutionary constraints. Function and design for the biblical God is hardly limited to what is needed for survival. The biblical God is not constrained by novelty as a critical factor in design. Rather, regularity magnifies God's honor as master over his creation. Regularity also speaks of there being only one creator, not many. So it provides a basis for no one having any excuse for living as if there is no creator. Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 23 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, There is a historical explanation for the Biblical worldview that explains degeneration in biology – the fall. This is often scoffed at as an explanation, but it does explain biological data as we see it today, and does so without the hindrances that evolution has. Essentially, evolutionists must interact with the Biblical God if they wish to seriously engage the design argument. Otherwise, theirs is nothing more than a straw man argument. The Creation.com article podcast is hosted by me, Joseph Darnell. You will find lots of interesting related content in the links and show notes. This episode's article was written by Sean Doyle. Be sure to listen to our other show, Creation.com Talk. Visit our events page to find a creationist giving a presentation in your local area. If you'd like to help us, become a multi-supporter at creation.com slash donate. If you want the latest noteworthy research and news, subscribe to Creation Magazine. From everyone at creation.com, thanks for listening.